Section 6b of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Respecting the opinions and speculations of some of these men, who are the leaders of the party, and agitators of the subject of Negro emancipation in America, we give the following as their views of the meaning of the law of Moses as regards bond slaves. See a series of pamphlets entitled The Bible Against Slavery, 1838. This writer dashes boldly into the matter and at once settles the subject forever. Of this work, see a note, page 8, 4th edition, which reads as follows, quote, The Bible record of actions is no comment on their moral character. It vouches for them as mere facts, not as virtues. It records without rebuke Noah's drunkenness, Lot's incest, and the lies of Jacob and his mother, not only single acts, but usages, such as polygamy and concubinage. All these are entered on the divine record without censure. Is that silent entry God's endorsement? Because the Bible, in its catalogue of human actions, does not stamp on every crime its name and number and write, This is a crime. Does that wash out its guilt? and bleach it into a virtue? The writer of the note above alluded to is combating the belief which has always been entertained from the reading of the passages in the 25th of Leviticus, as above quoted, that the Hebrews might, if they would, enslave the people of old Canaan, and endeavors to give them another meaning, he informs the reader, in that note, that the statements of Moses on the subject of slavery, as they related to the race of Ham, were nothing but a record of crimes written against his countrymen for thus enslaving the Canaanites. And this is the opinion of all abolitionists. He allows, it is true, that Moses did not blame the Hebrews for enslaving the Canaanites and the strangers of the Hamite race dwelling among them, but that he made an entry in the book of the law of that dreadful sin. But that entry was not an approval, it was only a record of the crime. The above is a most singular opinion and has as much of the dust of sophistry in its composition as any written remarks we have ever met with. To perceive this, we have only to recollect that when that permissive trait of the law of Moses was given, was more than forty years before the Jews got possession of the country of Canaan. How, therefore, could the remarks of Moses which are found in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 through 46, be a record of the crime of slavery, when the thing alluded to, prospectively, had not as yet been done by forty years or more. After the giving of the law from Mount Sinai, 
it was more than forty years before the hebrews under the conduct of joshua went through the river jordan into the promised land those famous passages therefore are not a record of what had been done already but of what might be done when they should come to possess the country of old canaan avoid this conclusion he that can but further we shall show the marks of a reckless hand as detailed in the pamphlet above alluded to where the scriptures are shown up as affording no reproof for certain wicked actions of certain wicked men as held by abolitionists such as noah in his drunkenness lot in his incest and the lies of jacob and his mother as well as the polygamy of the patriarchs all of which are entered as a mere record without censure says this writer but such is not the fact for the scriptures say that no drunkard can inherit the kingdom of heaven first corinthians chapter six verses nine and ten nor incestuous person or fornicator in deuteronomy chapter twenty one verse twenty it is said that if a son was a drunkard he should be stoned to death this is a reproof of those crimes with a vengeance we could multiply even from the old testament reproofs for sins of the kinds above named as to polygamy the scriptures do nowhere say that a man might have more than one wife neither in the old nor the new testament by the saviour it is strictly or impliedly forbidden matthew chapter nineteen verses five through eight and was it not the saviour jesus christ who gave the law from sinai to moses and the jews is it likely therefore that christ in the law would allow polygamy by a direct precept when he has said in the verses above quoted that from the beginning it was not so it is true however that moses in the law did suppose deuteronomy chapter twenty one verse fifteen the case of a man having two wives and has there prescribed certain regulations respecting the children of such wives but does not in so many words anywhere say that his people might have more wives than one at a time nor had moses himself ever but one wife it is true also that he gave a power to the jews to put away a wife by divorce who did not please them but even this allowance was done out of mercy to the woman for on this very subject jesus christ said that moses allowed it to be done on account of the hardness of their hearts or cruelty to their wives but from the beginning it was not true that a man might have a plurality of wives on this subject the saviour founds his argument against polygamy namely that god or himself who was god in the beginning made them male and female and married them to each other adding 
that as god had put them together by marriage that no man could legally or morally put them asunder except for but one cause only are we therefore to imagine that the author of both codes of law the gospel and the pentateuch would thus contradict his own eternal views of morality accordingly there is found no such admission in the law of moses but exactly the contrary it is true however that polygamy was practised to a great extent during all the ages of the jewish history but the writer of these pages is not prepared to say that the law of god allowed it or that the scriptures even of the old testament have not reproved it but otherwise for it is written by nehemiah chapter thirteen verse twenty six that solomon who had many wives sinned against god and his own soul by doing so this passage we consider a direct censure of the practice as well as the remarks of the saviour in matthew chapter nineteen verse five who said that it was not so from the beginning and consequently could not have been allowed in the old law see deuteronomy chapter seventeen verse seventeen where it is written that when the people of the hebrews should come to possess the country of canaan and they should desire a king one from among their brethren of the twelve tribes he was not to multiply wives two is a multiplication of one more wives than one therefore was forbidden by the law of moses and although that good trait of the law was never so much violated in that respect by all the jews under heaven in those ages yet this does not make it out that the scriptures allowed polygamy or did not reprove the practice as a sin but the author of the note above alluded to appears willing to have it pass that the scriptures do not reprove sin especially in the old testament even though the sins were drunkenness polygamy incest and lying but merely speaks of them as a simple entry or record of such deeds and acts this mighty stretch of opinion is introduced in order that the reader may be led to believe that when moses in the law has said that the hebrews should buy their bondmen of the heathen has only made a record of that great crime in this particular to carry out and to impress this belief the author of that series of pamphlets and of the note in question does not hesitate to call noah a drunkard and lot an incestuous person two men among five of the most holy named on the pages of the divine oracles but as it relates to these two men noah and lot we maintain that they were not sinners in the alleged transactions noah as we have said before was an aged man being over six hundred years old when he drank the wine spoken of by moses genesis chapter nine verse twenty one its effects therefore 
were undoubtedly wholly unforeseen by him, as by that time the iron nerves of his youth and maturer years were beginning to be reduced by weakness and the disabilities of age. A very little wine, therefore, might have disposed him to sleep, a condition far enough from a debauch, or an intended reckless inebriation. If so, then he was no sinner in that affair, nor does the scriptures intimate any such thing. Had Noah been wickedly intoxicated, is it likely that the Holy Ghost would have communed with and inspired him, respecting the fortunes of mankind, who were to descend from his three sons, whose every word on that occasion heaven had seen fit to fulfill? Never! Neither was Lot a sinner in the affair of his daughters, for the scriptures plainly state, Genesis chapter 19, verses 33 through 35, that when his daughters approached him in an improper way, he perceived it not when they lay down with him, nor when they arose. There was no sin, therefore, in that transaction on the part of Lot, as his mind did not consent to the deed, nor his perceptions take cognizance of the act. As to his drinking too much on that occasion, there can be no doubt that his daughters contrived some way to deceive him, by mixing wine with his food, or drink of water, till he became senseless. As to the case of Jacob, in the matter of his lying to his father, when he said that he was the man Esau, this was far enough from being a good act, but was actually a wicked one. But was not this sin reproved during the night, in which he slept on the mountain, at which time he was converted to God by the operation of the Holy Ghost, when he had the dream of the celestial ladder, and when he awoke and said, God is in this place, and I knew it not. Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. Surely, this account is something more than a mere silent entry of the sin of lying, as it is a tacit record at least of the reproof. For how could it be pardoned except reproved and repented of? And besides, do not the divine oracles everywhere reprove all liars, and in the New Testament threaten them with hell-fire? Thus briefly have we endeavored to rescue the character of the Bible, and the characters of two good and holy men, Noah and Lot, from the aspersions of a lawless pen, which pen, for no other purpose in the world, than by any means to get it to be believed that Moses did not, in the law, allow of direct slavery, has been willing thus to write, and to mystify the minds of readers, attempting to show that Moses, in all that he has said on the subject of slavery, has merely made a record of the crime without reproof. Though, as it happened, the crime was not perpetrated till some forty years or more after the record was made, as above remarked. But we pass from this 
to another particular opinion of the author of the bible against slavery see number six of this series of pamphlets year eighteen thirty eight page seventeen and onward to the end of the chapter where the word by as used by moses in relation to the hebrews making slaves of the canaanites by purchase is shown by that writer according to his mode of reasoning to mean after all nothing but to hire instead of buy vast pains are taken by the writer of that work to show that because the word buy is sometimes used in the scripture phraseology in application to some things which could not be sold as wisdom etc that therefore the word buy as used by moses when he said the hebrews might buy the children of the heathen negroes for slaves did not mean purchase but rather signified a reciprocal contract entered into between the parents of such children and adult persons thus bought and was therefore but a conditional bargain after all which if not fulfilled on the part of the buyer rendered the bargain null and void could this position be fairly sustained the fact of real slavery as supposed to have been practiced among the hebrews by the authority of their law would cease to exist but this moses does not state the case in relation to bondmen there was no condition except that if a master should in anger smite out a tooth or an eye of his servant then he might go free for his tooth or his eye's sake but there was no other condition by which he could go free in the eye of that law or be absolved from the condition of a slave or legal property if they were but once bought they became perpetual slaves to be inherited by the heirs of those who bought them and of necessity liable to be sold again whenever the owner should please to do so this is the full complete and unambiguous meaning of the forty-sixth verse of the twenty-fifth of leviticus and all the parallel places in the book of the law thus reads the passage and ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit for a possession they shall be your bondmen for ever the words inherit and possession are here used in the same property sense in no wise differing from their use when spoken in the promise of god to abraham isaac jacob and the hebrews respecting the possession of the land of canaan which was to be their real inheritance and possession forever as soon as the time should come when they should enter upon it by conquest this was all in futurity when promised as it respected the land of the canaanites as also was the promise of the bodies of the inhabitants for slaves one was equally as much a promise as was the other of such as should not be slain in the subjection of the country there was no difference now to carry out this notion of the above-mentioned pamphlets on the idea of the word buy or possession 
being no more than the word hire or contract, then the promised possession of the country of Canaan would, after all, amount to nothing more than to rent it, while the fee simple would have still remained in the hands of the Canaanites, who, instead of being slaves, and the possession of the Hebrews, would in reality have been the lords of the Hebrews. The promise of the country of Canaan to the progeny of Abraham and Isaac is multiplied in the old scriptures almost without end, in the words inheritance, possession, etc. Were those words making out those promises used in a delusive or uncertain sense, as if the possession of that country by the Hebrews depended on the acquiescence of the Canaanites? But if not, then are the same words, as used by Moses in the law, giving the person of the Canaanites to be an inheritance and a possession of the same force and meaning that they are when used in relation to the land, notwithstanding the dodging of abolition writers about the words buy and sell. If the sense of this word buy, in its most ordinary meaning, is turned aside in its application to the case in hand, then in a moment a multitude of the scripture history of transactions between buyers and sellers are rendered uncertain and doubtful. To give a few cases in prosecution of the idea, as follows. The sons of Jacob went to Egypt to buy corn for their families. Genesis chapter 42 verse 4. Jacob bought a field of the Shechemites in the land of Canaan, long before the time of Moses, for a hundred pieces of money. Genesis chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. There also was the case of Joseph, who was sold to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. Genesis chapter 37, verse 28. Who was again sold to Potiphar in Egypt. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. In the process of time, this Joseph bought all the land of Egypt from the Egyptians for the king on account of the famine. Genesis chapter 47, verse 20. In all these cases, the usual terms of buy and sell, as commonly applied in traffic, are resorted to, although one of these cases was the sale of the body and person of a man, namely Joseph, or the thing bought, the same as any other goods or chattels. During this famine, Joseph not only bought all the land of Egypt, but he also bought the Egyptians themselves, men, women, and children, for corn. Respecting the case of Egyptians, we will give the whole account, that the reader may judge whether Joseph did actually buy the Egyptians as a man would buy anything else. See Genesis chapter 47, from the 15th to the 26th verse inclusive. And when money failed in all the land of Egypt, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us corn, for why should we die in thy presence, for the money faileth? And Joseph said, Give your cattle, 
and I will give you food for your cattle if money fail. Was not this a goods and chattels bargain? And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses, and for flocks, and for the cattle of the herds, and for the asses, and he bought with bread all the cattle that year. But to this account, Josephus adds that with the cattle Joseph bought all their slaves. From this fact it appears that the Egyptians had slaves, and that they sold them to Joseph, who did not refuse to buy them, which, had it been a sin to do so, as abolitionists contend, he would not have done it, famine or no famine. But the story is not yet finished. For when the year was at an end, and their bread was gone, for which they had given their cattle and slaves, they came unto Joseph, and said, We will not hide it, how that our money is spent. Also thou hast our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of our Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes? both we and our lands. Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants, that is, slaves, unto Pharaoh. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, so that the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities, from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Having a right to do this, in virtue of his purchase of their bodies. Surely this was a bona fide contract, equally so with any other bargain, where the money is paid for the thing bought. And why should not this have been so? as there is no doubt but the king's money during the seven years of plenty had bought by the management of joseph all the grain the egyptians had to spare which he laid up in the granaries of the country End of chapter six b